pray. Father, thank you for who you are and what you have done. It is because of who you are and what you've done that we can sing those words that Christ is our hope, not just in this life, but even in death and in the life to come. So may we see Jesus in all of his humble grace and universal glory this morning. Riding into Jerusalem on the back of a borrowed donkey, humble but powerful, able to win eternal salvation on behalf of all who will trust in him and in him alone. So give us eyes to see Jesus. Give us hearts to love Jesus. Give us knees to bow before Jesus and hands and feet to obey Jesus. In his name I pray, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, choir and orchestra, for leading us this morning. And I do need to have a rather lengthy introduction to give all of them time to get to where you are. All right, so if you have your copies of the Scriptures, I would encourage you to open them to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible with you, you will find a Bible near you in the hymnal rack of the pew in front of you, or if you're sitting in the front row of a section, uh, they're in the hymnal rack beneath you. You will find a church Bible, and you can go to page 1007 in the church Bible. It's so important that you see the text of Scripture for yourself. Don't just take my word for it, but see it with your own eyes. And as we are waiting for the choir and orchestra to get to where you are, let me just say this. Um, Those of you who are new with us this morning, you may not know that my family and I, we were gone last week, and so I say a special thank you to Dr. Jaspers for preaching in my absence. But I want you to know how much we missed being with you last Sunday. You know you love a church when you're in another church and you're looking at your watch thinking, this is what's happening back at Bethel at this time. They're singing their first song. They're singing their last song. You know, Dr. Jaspers is getting up to preach now, and that's, that was me last Sunday morning. It is good to be back with our church family. We love you all, and we thank you for the time to be able to be away, but we love the time to be together with you. We've been working our way through Mark chapter 11, or excuse me, through Mark's gospel, and we come to this morning, Mark chapter 11, Jesus living his life on purpose and calling us to follow him and living that life on purpose. And this morning, the text shows Jesus on purpose entering Jerusalem to die on purpose for us. This is our King. You follow along in your copies of God's Word, please, beginning in in chapter 11 and verse 1 of the Gospel of Mark. 
Now when they, that is Jesus and the disciples and this crowd that has now joined Jesus, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and they found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they, and they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest, which means praise to God in the highest. And Jesus entered Jerusalem. He went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything... As it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of our God, but it's, it's not the end of the story on Palm Sunday that we would expect. What happens in the morning leads to something so unexpected in the evening when it's just Jesus and his twelve disciples. We'll get there in just a moment. I had originally planned and prepared a slam-bang introduction to this text this morning. And then this past week happened with the school shooting in Nashville and three children and three adults losing their life at a Christian school like ours. And one of the children killed was the nine-year-old daughter of the lead pastor at Covenant Presbyterian Church. There have been other school shootings, but this one hit especially close to home for me. And then, for the first time in American history, this past week, a former president of the United States was indicted It's a reminder that in our nation, tensions are running high politically and socially, even economically, with the recent failures of several big banks and the ongoing fight against inflation. How many, by the way, how many of you are glad you came this morning? All right. I mean, this is. And then last Sunday, our family worshiped at a church in southwest Iowa where my youngest brother is an associate pastor. And in that church just a week ago, a three-year-old boy in their congregation died of cancer. We were with a grieving church family last Sunday. And then right here in our church, we lost a godly man unexpectedly a deacon, a committed follower of Jesus has left behind a wife and a daughter. 
And we read here that Jesus is king over this. This is life in our world where so often we feel like the rug is being pulled out from under us. And let's just be honest, the big question we should be asking is, where in the world is God in all of this? Maybe you don't like to ask that question. Maybe you don't like it that I'm asking that question. But we need to ask that question because in God's good providence, we come to a text of Scripture this morning that answers that precise question. Now, it answers that question in a somewhat surprising way. Because in this text, we see a humble king, a servant king, who is also the sovereign king, who doesn't back away from this world's pain and suffering. Instead, he walks into it with his eyes wide open into his own pain and suffering while exercising complete control over all of it, all of the timing all of the events, all of the people. It's what we read in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15. Jesus is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so the big idea of this scene in Mark chapter 11 this morning is that Jesus Christ is King of everyone and everything. Do you believe that? Jesus Christ is king of everyone and everything in this scene in Mark 11 and every scene in your life. You believe that? It's just that many don't worship Jesus as king because he doesn't fit into their kingly construct. He doesn't meet their preconceived kingly notions that's the crowd here in Mark 11. They want Jesus to be their kind of king. Republicans want him to cut taxes. Democrats want him to expand health care. Investors want him to slash interest rates. Consumers want him to stop inflation. College students want him to forgive their loans. This is the Jesus they want. This is the king They'll worship. So the question is, what kind of king do I want Jesus to be? You know, we would never say it out loud, but in our hearts, we maybe sort of want Jesus to be the Amazon Jesus. Just be the place where we can have nearly anything we want delivered directly to our door. Or maybe we're all about the state's attorney Jesus who will protect all, who will, who, will, who will right all the wrongs and prosecute all the people who've wronged me. Or maybe we would prefer the travel agent, Jesus, who would secure for us a carefree, smooth sailing cruise throughout the rest of our lives. Or can I just confess to you that there are times I'd love to have the life coach, Jesus? who will tell me what to do in every situation as a pastor and who will give me the precise words to say when I'm preaching 
And then we'll give a scientific formula for getting more people to come to him so that there's not an empty seat left in this room on Sundays. I'd love to have a Jesus who would make my ministry easier and better and more impactful. A king created in my own image who will do what I want, when I want, for as long as I want. A king who's all about my kingdom. That's so many of these people who are with Jesus as he draws near to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday morning. But what happens in this scene is actually set up by what happens on Saturday, before this scene. The events of Saturday are recorded for us in John chapter 12, where we learn that Jesus has spent the day, he has spent Saturday in Bethany, hanging out at the home of Lazarus. You remember, yes, that Lazarus, the one Jesus has just raised from the dead about a month ago. And when word gets out that Jesus is in Bethany at Lazarus' home, a large crowd of Jews just descends upon Lazarus' home. They show up, which riles up all of the chief priests in Jerusalem, and they make plans now to assassinate Lazarus because so many Jews are believing on Jesus because of Lazarus. So the plot thickens. And so does the crowd then that joins Jesus the next morning on Sunday morning when he sets out on that three-mile trek up the Mount of Olives and then into Jerusalem. And when people in Jerusalem hear that Jesus is at the base of, Mount, uh, base of the Mount of Olives, they come running down the mountain from Jerusalem to welcome Jesus. There is this, I mean, joining with the group that's already with Jesus, there's this messianic electricity just kind of hanging in the air. Guys are chest bumping and bro hugging. Ladies are singing and dancing and boys and girls are hopping and skipping and jumping because everyone has expectations for Jesus. Expectations they expect Jesus to meet. Hopes that they've pinned on Jesus. Dreams they want fulfilled by Jesus. So many in this crowd are thinking to themselves, listen, if you're hungry, Jesus can feed you. If you're sick, he can heal you. If you're dead, he can raise you. Jesus can do it all. He can give us our best life now. He's the health and wealth of Messiah. He's everything we never knew we always wanted. That's some of the people in this crowd, but that's also some of the political zealots in this crowd. They want a political Jesus, a military hero who will swoop into Jerusalem on the back of a white horse and give those Romans what they deserve. And so the political zealots are glad to join with the normal everyday people in welcoming Jesus and celebrating him, even though there are Pharisees and scribes in the crowd as well. Remember, wherever Jesus goes during his ministry, the Pharisees and the scribes aren't too far behind. They're lurking in the shadows. They're conspiring against Jesus because he's a threat to the religious kingdom they've built. 
So they too have expectations for Jesus. They have plans for Jesus. They don't want him to be the health and wealth Jesus or, or the political Jesus. They want him to be a dead Jesus. And then you have the disciples who are part of this crowd as well. And they have plans and expectations for Jesus too. And if you've been with us for our study, you'll know that they want Jesus to be an empire Jesus who will take the throne and make them princes and dukes in his kingdom. Even though he's told them three different times already that he's coming to Jerusalem to die. Still, they are confused about the mission of Jesus. But that doesn't dampen their enthusiasm in this moment, especially since Bartimaeus and Zacchaeus are probably a part of this group that's with Jesus on Sunday morning. And when they reach the base of the Mount of Olives, Jesus gives two of his disciples a significant assignment. Now, one of the things, you know, I've preached this text before. In fact, if you'll go back and you'll look at YouTube from last Palm Sunday, I preached this exact same text last Palm Sunday. I tell you that in full disclosure because some of you are going to meet me at the door and say, I remember what you preached last Palm Sunday. I know what you were doing on vacation. You weren't prepping a sermon. You just preached the... No, this is not the same sermon. By the way, that's hard to do. It's hard not to re-preach a sermon because you are familiar with the text. And anyway, that's just preacher stuff, okay? But one of the things that just really hit me this time in preparing this text was when we think of Palm Sunday, we think of what we read beginning in verses 8, 9, and 10. We think the crowd crying out, you know, the palm branches, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's three verses. Look at how many verses are dedicated to the securing of the donkey. There's really seven of them, seven verses. I think this is what, if Mark were standing here preaching to us this morning, he'd say, this is what I want you to get about Sunday, Palm Sunday. How the disciples secure this donkey for Jesus, it is a significant assignment When Jesus says to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. By the way, that's an important little phrase that I don't have time this morning to fully unpack, but you can do your research. You can go back into the Old Testament, and a royal donkey used in the king's service was always to be a donkey upon which no one had ever sat. Jesus says, when you find that donkey, untie it and bring it. That's an unusual assignment because there would be hundreds of donkeys right there in Bethany where Jesus has just spent the night. And because of his popularity, Jesus would have no problems securing a donkey himself. But no. No, he's going to send two of his disciples on a donkey mission. You know why? They have to know that they can always trust him. Even when what he's asking them to do seems unreasonable or even undoable. I mean, if you were going to fetch a donkey you've never seen, from a house you've never visited, from people you've never met, wouldn't you want a little more information than what Jesus gives here? 
I mean, it would be like Jesus telling us, hey, go, go to that car dealership up on Golf Road. And we'd be like, Jesus, do you have any idea how many dealerships are up on Golf Road? And so he says, when you arrive at the dealership, hop into one of the brand new SUVs and it's going to start right up and then drive it back here. And we'd be like, Jesus, we still don't know which dealership. And now we don't know which SUV. But here's the big thing. How in the world is the owner of the dealership going to just let us drive the car off the lot? And Jesus says, if they ask, just tell them that the Lord has need of it and will bring it back immediately. Now, how many of you would be real excited about obeying Jesus here? But that's what Jesus is asking these two disciples to do. I thought about it this week, and I thought to myself, I wonder which two disciples were sent on this mission. I would like to think it was James and John. You know why? Because just a few verses ago, back in Mark chapter 10, you remember what they're asking Jesus? They're asking for the best seats in the kingdom, right up front, where they can be in the limelight right beside Jesus. And wouldn't it be just like Jesus to say to James and John, listen, you need a little humility. I'm going to send you to fetch a donkey. And I can just imagine James saying to John as they're walking to find this donkey, you know, John, how did we get ourselves into this? I mean, we really don't know where we're going or the donkey we're looking for, or the people we're taking it from. And John says, you know, I was thinking the same thing, James. But hey, listen, remember, we're guys, and so we ain't stopping to ask for directions. Some of you think about that. You'll get it later, okay? But, but you know, if Jesus would have just given us an address, that would have helped. If he would have given us the donkey owner's name, we could have asked around. Or even the donkey's name would have helped you know, so often that is us. So often we would love Jesus to be a king who gives us more information, more details, more specifics, more particulars. But as we discover in this scene, what God has said to us is enough for us every time. His word is sufficient. Psalm 119 verse 105 says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And that's true here because notice the disciples find the donkey and when they untie the donkey, the donkey owners say precisely what Jesus said they would. Yo, bros, what are you doing with the donkey? And when the disciples tell the owners what Jesus said to say, the owners let the disciples walk away with the donkey just like Jesus said. Because he's the king who doesn't just know all the possible outcomes. He's in control of every outcome. He's a trustworthy king. And so we can obey him unconditionally, even when his assignments seem unreasonable and his plans illogical and the outcome improbable. 
So where does the assignment he has for you seem to be undoable? Maybe it's forgiving someone who's wronged you intentionally and hurt you deeply. Maybe it's loving a spouse who isn't, who isn't always loving toward you. Maybe it's sharing the love of Jesus with a friend or a coworker or a neighbor and just thinking about that intimidates you. Maybe it's the future that scares you or the possibilities that worry you or the unknowns that consume you. Young person, you're afraid that God is going to assign you to be a missionary in Africa. That's the last thing you want to be. That's the last thing you want to do and the last place you want to go. Wherever trusting God is an issue for you, this donkey scene is here for you. King Jesus will never steer you wrong. So as Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 say, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will. Not He might, not He probably will, or there's a really good chance He will. No, He will direct your paths every time. All the time. Just like he does with these disciples. Who then, after securing the donkey, bring it back to Jesus. And throw their cloaks on the donkey's back. And when Jesus climbs onto this donkey. By the way, that is significant. It's significant because it tells us that everything that happens in this scene is intentionally... um, Intentionally driven by Jesus. Because do you know how many other times in the Gospels we see Jesus riding on a donkey? Zero. Every other time we see Jesus on the move in the Gospels, it's always with his feet walking. This is the only time he's riding. There's intentionality to this. There is purpose behind this. And when he climbs onto that donkey, a spontaneous response erupts from the people. They begin spreading their cloaks and palm branches on the road in front of Jesus. It's kind of the red carpet treatment for Jesus. And then they surround Jesus front and on the sides and from behind. And they begin shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And they keep keep shouting it and they keep singing it and they keep saying it. You know why? Those aren't just random words. Those are words from Psalm 118. These are the, these are the Psalms of ascent that the Passover pilgrims would sing every time they make their way into Jerusalem at Passover. And this is the final song they would sing. Wow. A song that they are ascribing now to Jesus. The coming of the kingdom of our father David, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. So these are not just random shouts of excitement. These are words and terms and phrases that are deeply meaningful to you if you're a Jew. 
Because as Jesus rides into Jerusalem as king, he's fulfilling Old Testament prophecy as Messiah. It's what we read in Zechariah 9 verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, look. Look, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so when you see this scene unfolding before you, you would be thinking, here he is, the one we've waited for, the one we've prayed for, the one we've sung about, the king who is the yes to all of God's promises, the one before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. That's why Jesus receives the worship of the crowd that's shouting, Psalm 118, verse 26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And if you would have been a part of this scene, at this moment, you would be thinking to yourself, it's so perfect. I mean, everything fits. Wow. I can't believe I get to see this and be in the crowd for this. Everything looks so perfect. Everyone worshiping Jesus is king. But we know the rest of the story. We know that many in the crowd have created a king in their own image. And that's a problem. Listen carefully. That's a problem to create a king in your own image. Because when you create a king in your own image, you will eventually choose your king over the true king. When the true king doesn't fulfill your expectations, when he doesn't heal the loved one you've prayed for or get you the job promotion you've asked for or give you the marriage you've longed for, you'll be tempted to do what the people do here, to slowly and silently walk away from the true king. That's why on Sunday evening, The people are no longer around when Jesus makes a symbolic entrance into the temple where he looks around at everything. It's late in the day now, and it's just Jesus and the 12 disciples now. It's almost anticlimactic. After all the excitement, after all the enthusiasm, And this is the end of the story. Jesus and the twelve just looking around the temple. Did you know that's why most Palm Sunday sermons end with verse 10? Because we don't know what to do with verse 11. But what happens on Sunday evening is significant because it's symbolic. Jesus is demonstrating both his true humanity and a holy tenacity. Now, I wonder if sometimes we unwittingly downplay the humanity of Jesus. He is truly God, amen? Jesus is truly God, amen? But He is also truly man. And His humanity does not subtract from His deity, nor does His deity subtract from His humanity. Which means Jesus has feelings like us and memories like us. 
And as he's walking through the temple, looking around at everything in the temple, I wonder, does his mind go back to all the Passovers he's been a part of? All the Passovers he celebrated here because we read in Luke chapter 2 that Mary and Joseph visited Jerusalem at every Passover. Is Jesus reflecting on all these previous Passovers? Because he knows it's his last one. Does he hear echoes of his conversations with the scholars and the doctors and the teachers when he was 12 years old right here in the temple? Is he thinking back on what he told Mary and Joseph after they left Jerusalem and realized that he wasn't with them and he said to them, I must be about my father's business. And here he is in the temple again, 21 years later, but this time he's coming to finish the father's business. And so when Jesus looks around at the temple and he sees the altar where he has witnessed hundreds of lambs being slain, what must he be thinking as the lamb who will be slain for the sins of the world? I wonder, does he take a final look at the nearly 60-foot tall curtain that led into the Holy of Holies, knowing that in five days that curtain will be miraculously torn in two from top to bottom when his body is torn open for us on the cross? It's through him and his sacrifice Alone that we enter into the Father's presence. And I wonder, is Jesus on this Sunday evening beginning to feel the weight of all that that means for him as he looks upon the altar and the curtain in the temple? Because Mark tells us that Jesus looks around at everything, but there's no mention of Jesus saying anything. And I believe the silence of Jesus speaks to the holy tenacity of Jesus. He is laser-focused here because he's feeling the pull to be the people's kind of king. It's the same temptation he's faced throughout his entire ministry, that he could have all the worship and adoration and praise and glory that's rightfully his without the suffering of the cross. You remember, it's what Satan himself tempted Jesus with back in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry. Just bow to me, and you can have all the kingdoms of the world. It's what Jesus faced when he fed the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. And you remember, they tried to take Jesus by force and make him king. And here it is again at the end of his ministry as he's riding into Jerusalem. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, be our kind of king, Jesus. Don't think he felt that pull? You don't think he tasted that glory? He's silent in the temple after all of that goes down. And he's silent because he will not give in to that temptation. Instead, he will stare down the cross in silence. His soul is heavy. 
The weight of the world's sin is being placed upon him. This is why he's come to Jerusalem. This is his mission. He will die. The king who is celebrated on Sunday will be crucified on Friday. Jesus is the king. The people were right about that. It's just that he isn't the king they expect or the king they want. But he is the king they need because he's the only king that can meet their greatest need. And that's the forgiveness of their sins. So, is Jesus your king? Is he the only one you believe can secure the forgiveness of your sins? Is Colossians 1 verses 13 and 14 your story that that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son? in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You say, Pastor Ken, well, why is the forgiveness of sins such a big deal? Because of what Romans 6 verse 23 says, that the wages for sin is death. And that's why Jesus has to die. That's why he cannot be the people's kind of king. That's why he must be God's kind of king. That's why he must die. Because in his death, he is paying the wages for our sin. There is no forgiveness. There is no freedom. There is no life for us apart from his death for us. Would you trust him? Would you believe on him? Because what that took was the blood of Jesus. Ephesians 1 verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. He takes the wages of our sin and dies so that we could get the greatness of his grace. We have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. The riches of that grace. When we, according to Romans 10 verse 9, confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, then we will be saved. Do you know him? Is he your king? Have you trusted in him and in him alone? And when you trust in Jesus as your savior and king, there are three takeaways from this scene. The first is to love Jesus deeply. Love the one who will not forgo the suffering of the cross. Love the one who won't take any shortcuts or detours around the cross to secure the glory that's rightfully his. He will not be the king the people want so that he could be the king you need. So, look to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Because he wouldn't 
take the shortcut. Love Jesus. Love him deeply. And secondly, trust him fully. See the intentionality that's in play in this scene. Jesus is in control of everything that will go down in Jerusalem during Passion Week. He's not a helpless victim. He's a willing sacrifice. He dies on purpose, and that gives real purpose to everything we face in life. Even when our questions aren't answered, even when the pain doesn't subside or the struggle doesn't stop, Jesus rules and reigns over all of it, working in all of it to work out all of it for our good. It's Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And we know Romans 8, verse 28 is true because of what we read in verse 32, that God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. So how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Trust him fully. Love him deeply. And thirdly, worship him rightly. And what I mean by that is worship Jesus for the king he is. Because as we learn in this text, we can say the right things and even do the right things without our heart being in the right place. Just like these people. And that's why we need to come to this table regularly. That's why we need to remember and reorient our hearts and refocus our minds on the mission of our King, that He has come to seek and to save the lost by giving His life as a ransom for many. That is why we love Him. That is why we trust Him. That is why we worship Him. He's he's the only King we want because He's all the King. We need. Jeremiah 10, verses 6 and 7. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who will not fear you, O King of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. This is our King. Let us come and feed our souls on all that He is for us. I'm going to ask you if you would bow at this time and prepare your heart as we come to our Lord's table to celebrate our King, to remember the price that was paid, that He paid to be our King. Let's obey what we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Let's, let's search out our hearts before God. Let's prepare our hearts to partake of the bread and the juice which symbolize the body and blood of Jesus. Father, thank you. Thank you for your Son. 
Thank you for his real humanity, his holy tenacity. Thank you for what he did on the cross for us. May we remember well and worship well now. In Jesus' name, amen.